I want to thank uh, Sean Kay at Ohio Wesleyan University for helping uh, to work with us here at Ohio State to bring Jonathan Landay out from Washington. He spoke at Ohio Wesleyan uh, earlier, and he'll be flying back to Washington tonight, so I appreciate him squeezing us in uh, on his uh, short trip. Jonathan Landay is the Senior National Security and Intelligence Correspondent for McClatchy Newspapers. He's a veteran a foreign affairs reporter, has written on U.S. defense intelligence and foreign policies for nearly 25 years. He has experience in South Asia, Iraq, the Balkans, and Washington. He's previously worked for the United Press International, where he covered the final four years of the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan, also conflicts in the Punjab, Kashmir, Sri Lanka, and the 1989 crackdown in Tiananmen Square in China. He's also covered the collapse and the wars that followed of Yugoslavia for the UPI and later for the Christian Science Monitor. After moving to Washington in 1994 to write on defense and foreign affairs for the Christian Science Monitor, he joined Knight Rider and now with McClatchy Newspapers. Uh, Mr. Lanny's been nominated three times for the Pulitzer Prize for his investigative work. He's won many awards uh, from a variety of different journalistic organizations. And today he's going to speak on Pakistan and the war in Afghanistan and the lecture he's entitled the region, it's the region, stupid, the real dangers of U.S. failure in Afghanistan and uh, Pakistan. So without further ado, Jonathan Landay, thank you for coming out. Hi, good afternoon. Thank you very much for having me here. Um, and thanks for coming out on this blustery day. Uh, thank you to the Mershon Center and... Um, everyone else who is involved in bringing me out here. Uh, I appreciate you coming. Uh, you could have been doing something a lot more exciting, uh, like watching the health care conference between President Obama and the Republicans. Um, uh, let me begin by just laying out that this is me speaking, and it's not McClatchy Newspapers. For those of you who don't know, McClatchy Newspapers is the third largest publisher of newspapers in the United States. Uh, we publish 30 newspapers, and we own 30 newspapers outright. We have a bunch that we co-own. Uh, we also own entities like Cars.com uh, and CareerBuilder.com. Um, and so this is my own, uh, my own views. Do not reflect the views of McClatchy. Uh, as a journalist, I strive not to be policy prescriptive, and that's a Washington expression. Uh, meaning that I don't think it's my place as a journalist to advocate one position over another, or one strategy over another. After all, everyone knows that journalists don't have opinions. Um, but as a journalist, I see my job as being more of an educator, uh, someone who tries to provide his readers and audiences with information on a particular subject, on which they need to make informed, rational decisions, decisions underpinned by cold, hard facts, sometimes brutal facts, and facts that crash up against ideological views or uh, your patriotic views or opinions. So with that as kind of as my background to this, um, let me start by talking about... Uh, I just came, I spent four months... I've been going... And, and reporting on Afghanistan and Pakistan, South Asia, since 1986, uh, with a short five-year break to cover the breakup of former Yugoslavia. Um, 
And, and so the, what I'm going to lay out for you uh, is kind of what my accumulated wisdom, if that's what you want to call it, um, uh, uh, in this region uh, for the past 25 years. Um, I came back. I spent four months in Afghanistan last year. I nearly didn't return from my last trip uh, in September. Uh, I was with, embedded with marine trainers in Kunar province, which is... Um, how do I change the map on this? Sorry? Oh, the arrow key. Ah, great. Thank you. Kunar province, which is right here. Uh, we got caught in an ambush. Uh, we lost five Americans and nine Afghans. Uh, we were pinned down for about more than three hours without air support or artillery fire uh, or artillery support. Um, and I came back to this country uh, somewhat astounded and alarmed by the superficiality of the discourse on Afghanistan and the American stakes in what seemingly is a region. Whoops, went the wrong way. Ah, that for most Americans is not part of their consciousness even. And the reason I say this is because policy was and is largely being driven by a single issue, and that issue is the threat to the U.S. homeland posed by Al Qaeda should it ever return to a Taliban-run Afghanistan. This was the rationale that was being uh, uh, promoted by the Bush administration, and this is the rationale that is behind the Obama administration's strategy uh, that was announced by the president in December. It's the rationale behind the counterinsurgency strategy being pursued today by uh, General Stanley McChrystal, the U.S. commander in Afghanistan. And lost in all of this, I believe, are what I believe are the, the real consequences of an American failure in Afghanistan. And an American failure in Afghanistan could take two forms. One is a premature decision to withdraw or a decision to withdraw before the conditions are right. And even if we get the conditions right, there is still an enormous potential for failure in Afghanistan, simply because the United States squandered eight years of opportunity in Afghanistan, squandered it. And I don't know that we have the time or the, the administration has the political capital or the economic wherewithal to sustain an ongoing operation there. And let me return to the rationale as to why we are in Afghanistan as promoted by, as promoted by both the Bush administration, the Obama administration, members of Congress, um, all of the instant Afghan experts and uh, squawking heads that appear daily on television, and that's the idea of al-Qaeda returning to Afghanistan uh, and the threat it poses to the United States. And my contention is that, yes, al-Qaeda is a threat, 
but it is a threat that has been greatly exaggerated. And the reason I say this is because, beginning with the Bush administration, Al-Qaeda has been painted as an existential threat to the United States, the equivalent of the new Soviet nuclear arsenal. And yet, if you look at the way the Europeans treat the Al-Qaeda threat, they treat it as a threat to, that, that they need to deal with through police operations and through intelligence operations. They don't call it a war. And that's because it gives too much prominence to Al-Qaeda and its capabilities. Former Vice President Dick Cheney likes to refer to the fact that there hasn't been another attack on the United States since 9-11. And that's right. But they've tried. And let's look at the people who have tried. Every single one of them has been either screwed up the operation or has been uncovered before they could carry it out. And that's because, for the most part, the people that are sending against us are pretty amateurish. And blowing up an airplane that's landing in Detroit would be a pretty sad thing. It would be a tragedy for the families and the people affected. But it wouldn't end the United States as we know it. It would be a horrible thing. Airline stocks might crash for a while. People might be reluctant to get on airlines. But the only thing that would really suffer, the only people who would really suffer, would be the politicians who would be attacking each other, which they're already doing anyway, over who didn't take enough precautions to prevent this from happening. But it is not an existential threat. They are not and a threat to the existence of the United States as we know it. And yet we treat them that way. And that's what has been driving policy. So what I propose to lay out here today, and it's my, 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 conject, my belief that it's possible that a victorious Taliban, led by a victorious Mullah Muhammad Omar, who is the spiritual and temporal leader of the Taliban, the founder of the Taliban, um, would pro might be an even graver threat to U.S. and international security than Osama bin Laden. Because this is a man, Muhammad Omar, who has already participated in the defeat of the godless communists, the Soviets, and the communist Afghan governments. He was a mujahideen. He, in 1994, as the leader of the victorious, then victorious Taliban, having captured much of Afghanistan, became only the second man in Afghan history to go to the, mo the, the main mosque in Kandahar, um, right here, which is the cultural, historical, spiritual capital of the Pashtun people, the largest ethnic group in Afghanistan. It's an ethnic group that spans this border. Afghanistan, southern Afghanistan, eastern Afghanistan, and Pakistan, and don the most religious, the most, the holiest relic in Afghanistan. It's called the cloak of the prophet, and it's kept in the main mosque in, Af in Kandahar, the cloak of the prophet Muhammad. And he had himself declared the defender of the faithful. In other words, he had himself anointed the successor of the prophet. 
And should this man succeed in defeating the Jews and the Crusaders, as the coalition there is portrayed? It's my contention, my belief, that there would be very little chance that he would go back into quiet retirement in Kandahar, but could very well recreate a sanctuary in Afghanistan for every Islamic jihadist group in the world who's out to pursue jihad. He might not necessarily involve the Taliban in this, but there's no doubt in my mind, given his background, given tradition, uh, Afghan tradition, Pashtunwali, the, 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 law, the tribal law that gives uh, sanctuary, particularly to fellow Muslims, that he would become, that, 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 that Afghanistan would become the principal sanctuary for the groups that we really have to worry about. Um, and we have to worry about them because the real threat would be to the region. So, as I lay out my, my, uh, uh, what I believe the real threat that we face in Afghanistan, and dangers in Afghanistan are, I'm going to do it with a series of what I call concentric circles, beginning with Afghanistan itself and working outwards. Um, bear with me, this is complicated stuff. Um, and hopefully a lot of you are familiar with the history, at least some of the more contemporary history of, of this region. When the United States intervened in Afghanistan in 2001, it essentially interrupted a civil war that had been raging in Afghanistan since the end of the Soviet occupation, well, since the fall of the communist regime in Kabul. And that civil war was being fought largely along ethnic lines. This is where we start getting complicated. On one side was the Taliban, almost exclusively comprising the members of the largest ethnic group in Afghanistan, the Pashtuns, backed by, primarily, Pakistan, neighboring Pakistan, but also by Saudi Arabia, um, and to a certain extent, the United Arab Emirates. On the other side was what was referred to erroneously as a group called the Northern Alliance, which was actually the United Front, uh, but the American media decided to call them the Northern Alliance because most of their members comprise members of the ethnic groups that come from the northern part of Afghanistan. And in 2001, the remnants of the Northern Alliance, the United Fronts, was confined to a small pocket of territory up here in the very north of Afghanistan. It was led by a man named Ahmad Shah Massoud, perhaps the most, the fa most famous, was the most famous leader of the resistance against the Soviet occupation. We went in there and we interrupted this civil war, and we interrupted it and went, uh, on the side of the Northern Alliance. The former Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, likes to talk about how we sub subdued Afghanistan or overthrew the Taliban and Al-Qaeda simply with a few dozen special forces on horseback and bombs. Well, that's not true because we had a ground army in Afghanistan and that was the Northern Alliance. They fought as our ground troops. We interrupted this civil war. If the United States fails in Afghanistan, that civil war will resume. 
Only this time, Afghanistan, it threatens to turn Afghanistan into the Somalia of South Asia. Uh, Steve Cole, the author of Ghost Wars, and I don't know if any of you written it, read it, but it's the best book that's been written on uh, the, the Soviet era in Afghanistan. Refers, it talks about, this, talks about Somalia on steroids. And, and that's because the ethnic tensions in Afghanistan have been exacerbated by, uh, during the period that we've been there. And in particular, by the rigging of the elections last summer uh, by, on behalf of President Karzai against his opponent, who even though is half Pashtun and half Tajik, is regarded as a Tajik. Now, the Tajiks uh, formed the bulk of the Northern Alliance. This is where we started to get a little complicated. Come from this part of Afghanistan. Kabul is a largely Tajik city. Um, and um, those tensions continue because the Tajiks feel and the other minorities feel that the election was stolen, and well, it was. Now, that civil war, as I said, on one side, backing the Taliban were primarily the Pakistanis. But the Northern Alliance also had their foreign backers. And their chief foreign backer, very secretly, was India, the superpower of South Asia. If there is a resumption of a civil war in Afghanistan, it threatens to become a proxy war between Pakistan and India, with Pakistan continuing to back the Taliban, which it is continuing to do now, and India, which has a strategic relationship now with the Karzai government to the point where India is building roads, it's had members of its security forces in Afghanistan protecting its road-building crews. It sunk about $1.4 billion, which is a lot of money for India, in aid into Afghanistan. It's training Afghan members of the Afghan military. It built a power system that brings electricity from Tajikistan across the Hindu Kush into Kabul. Hindu Kush being the extension of the Himalayas that come down into Afghanistan from here. Um, it has a strategic relationship with President Karzai, and India does not want Afghanistan to revert back to Pakistani control, Pakistani influence, as they had during the Taliban era. And there's a major reason for that. The reason being, you all remember what happened in 2008? The terrorist attack on Mumbai. Well, that was only the most recent operation carried out by an extremist group created, armed, trained, sponsored by Pakistan's primary intelligence agency, the Inter-Services Intelligence. When this is only one of the groups that the Pakistani ISI and military have created to wage proxy guerrilla war against India over, as I told you, this is going to get complicated, this part of the subcontinent right here called Kashmir. Because Pakistan is a small country compared to India. It's got a much smaller armed forces. Indian armed forces are the fourth largest military in the world. And Pakistan cannot, and has tried to do this before, and has lost three wars, fight India in a conventional way, 
So they rely on what the military refers to as asymmetric warfare, which is sponsoring proxy guerrilla groups as instruments of Pakistani foreign policy. They use them here in Kashmir. They use them during the war of independence between Bangladesh and Pakistan. Bangladesh used to be what was known as East Pakistan. And there was a civil war in 1970. Uh, and Pakistan used proxies here. They lost that war when the Indians intervened. And they used them in Afghanistan. Whoops. Um, when President Clinton fired cruise missiles at an al-Qaeda base after the attack on the USS Cole in Yemen, 1996, I believe it was, the people who were killed in that base were not al-Qaeda members. They were members of a Kashmiri guerrilla group sponsored by the Pakistanis because they were already using training bases provided by al-Qaeda in Afghanistan to train. There are Pakistani, these Pakistani groups are fighting in Afghanistan against the United States today. The people who ambushed us, the Marines I was with, were probably members of Lashkar-e-Taiba, which is the group that attacked Mumbai. The Indian government after the Mumbai attack was very restrained in its response because had they retaliated, there could have been a very, very serious consequences in terms of a potential tit-for-tat that would have escalated into another war. And let's not forget, these two countries have nuclear weapons. And that's really at the nub of what I have to talk about. Because if you get a proxy war between India and Pakistan over Afghanistan, there's a danger that could escalate into a face-to-face confrontation, and a face-to-face confrontation raises the specter of nuclear weapons. So that's the first concentric circle. But let's say, let's, let's extend that out now into Pakistan itself. As you all know, Pakistan is grappling with a very serious internal insurgency uh, formed around groups at first, which also trace their uh, foundation to the Pakistani security services, which are based around the Pashtuns in this part of, Af- of Pakistan in what are known as the FATA, the Federally Administered Tribal Agencies. They are at the heart of the insurgency in Pakistan. And there's a reason for that. The reason being that the United States persuaded the then military dictator of Pakistan, General Pervez Musharraf, to send his army up into the federally administered tribal area for the first time since independence. There had never been an army, a Pakistani army in the numbers that went into the federally administered tribal agencies there than, than there were uh, beginning in about 2006, thanks to General Musharraf. The Americans persuaded them to send them there because that's where a lot of the sanctuaries of the Afghan Taliban are, and that's where the sanctuaries of Al-Qaeda are. So what we did 
was we sponsored what I like to call a secret war in which the Pakistani military attacked its own people and we we paid for that to the tune of about $10 billion. And what they did when they went up there is instead of conducting delicate counterinsurgency operations, because they didn't know how, where you go in and you, 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 you build, at the same time as conducting raids against the insurgents, you have to win over the population. And you do that by providing, building hospitals and roads and clinics and, and, and this kind of thing. No, the Pakistani military went in there with F-16s, helicopter gunships, heavy artillery, and they bombed and they strafed, and they killed lots of insurgents, but they killed lots of civilians as well, and they maybe as many as three million people have had to leave, had to flee that area over the last four years. They're living in places like Karachi, here, which is now the largest Pashtun city in the world. They're living in places like Quetta, and they're all living with relatives here. In that, in this area, in, in up here in Peshawar, which is the capital of the Northwest Frontier Province, and we also added to that by conducting our drone attacks, because at the same time as we were killing bad guys, we were also killing civilians and violating Pakistani sovereignty. So there's lots of blame to go around here. The point being that we, the United States, helped fuel the insurgency in Pakistan. And now the Pakistanis are trying to grapple with that. But they're trying to grapple that with, through a policy that differentiates between different extremist groups. They have their good Taliban, which are the Afghan Taliban. As long as the Afghan Taliban don't join the insurgency inside Pakistan, the Pakistani military and security force services are quite content to continue supporting the Afghan Taliban's insurgency in the south and east, and the bad Taliban, which are the guys, their own Pashtuns from the northwest frontier province, uh, from, from Fatah, I'm sorry, thinking that they can manage these, manage these two insurgent groups. The problem is that if the Taliban come back to power in Afghanistan, members of those, that, the, the Taliban and members of associated groups, in particular a group known as the Haqqani network, have said their next target will be Indian Kashmir. And a Taliban ruled in Afghanistan will provide them with a geographically contingent, con contiguous sorry, corridor from Afghanistan across the Pakistani part of Kashmir into Indian Kashmir. It will also provide a sanctuary for related groups, groups that want to carry out operations like Mumbai to try and ensure that there is never any kind of reconciliation between Pakistan and India. By the way, they were holding talks today, the first talk since 2008. Um, there's not a lot of hope, uh, and there's still a lot of enmity and a lot of mistrust on both sides. The populations on both sides are basically opposed to reconciliation right now, and, and I see no reason why they're going to ever fall in line and, and, and support it. So then we have another potential cause, not just of tensions between India and Pakistan, but also a threat, an increased threat to the stability and integrity of Pakistan itself. 
Pakistan is a country that was formed by five major ethnic groups who have one thing in common, Islam. Other than that, four of the ethnic groups all dislike intensely the largest ethnic groups, which are the Punjabis. And there's, a, there's the strains within Pakistan itself created by the insurgency, created by ethnic differences, created by economic problems, created by their, 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 uh, the, 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 the completely uh, um, paralyzed uh, um, political system are quite intense. So the threat to this, this, the, this, the, the, the um, um, dismemberment of Pakistan from a, a Taliban victory in Afghanistan rises hugely and let's not forget that Pakistan not only has nuclear weapons, but it has a num- quite a few nuclear reactors that generate a lot of nuclear waste. And nuclear waste, if you can't get the weapon itself, if you get the waste, you can build a dirty bomb. And a dirty bomb, theoretically, at least in terms of the impact it has politically and economically, could be almost as bad. So the fact is that, that, that as we the only way that Al-Qaeda becomes the threat that it's being portrayed as today is if Pakistan collapses. Because then you have the threat that they could get their hands on either nuclear waste or a nuclear weapon. Until that happens, we're exaggerating the threat posed by Al-Qaeda. Okay, let me shift to my next concentric circle, which is here. This is former Soviet Central Asia. And I want to talk specifically about these two countries, Uzbekistan and Tajikistan. Countries that have huge unemployed youth populations, large numbers of unemployed men, particularly uh, Uzbekistan. Um, A lot of young men used to be able to go to work in Russia and the Ukraine, but they've been pushed out, forced to go back home, There are huge, there's a very large unemployment problem in both places. Uh, They are both slowly becoming narco states by virtue of the fact that a lot of the drug trafficking that's coming out of Afghanistan is going up in Tajikistan, up through Tajikistan and Uzbekistan, up in its way towards Russia and then into Europe. Um, And the United States has helped enhance that problem. Why? Because we decided that we were going to build a bridge across the Amudaria River here to enhance uh, economic cooperation, boost economic cooperation and trade between Tajikistan and Afghanistan. Only what's going out over that bridge is narcotics. Uh, and, And you can go to the Tajikistan side of the border and see these mega palaces and BMWs and, 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 and Mercedes-Benz and that's because Tajikistan is basically becoming a narco-state. And along with narcos, narcos, a narco-state comes the mafia and crime, which tends to destabilize a place even more. But beyond that, the other thing that Tajikistan and Uzbekistan share are dictatorial regimes that have spent the last 20 years suppressing anything they consider dissent. And their chief target has been Islam. In particular, even moderate Islamic groups. 
The despot who runs Uzbekistan has even gone so far as boiling people alive. And so you have a situation in Central Asia, which don't forget, there's enormous deposits of natural gas and oil here, in particular here, Azerbaijan. But uh, there's a lot of natural gas up here and India wants it. Uh, Pakistan would like to get it. Um, and it's an alternative to Iran, the energy coming out of there. Um, and so you have conditions that exist in Central Asia that are ripe for the export of extremism across the border from Afghanistan. And one of the stories I broke on my last visit uh, to Afghanistan was a story, I don't know if any of you saw the night line, saw front line on PBS the other night. It was uh, something like uh, behind the Taliban lines or something. But they, were, they weren't actually with the Taliban, they were with another group called the Hezb Islami, run by a guy by led by a guy by the name of Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, who operate up here, not in the Taliban strongholds of southern and eastern Afghanistan, but they're up here. And I broke that story. And along with those extremists, they're Pashtuns as well, have come Chechens, Arabs, as well as Tajiks and Uzbeks. And their goal is to export jihad across the borders. I've been speaking a long time. I'm going to, I'm going to try and wrap this up with the, la my, the last of my concentric circles, which I can't put on here because it has to do with Europe. And that is the international operation that's going on in Afghanistan right now is the largest and first combat operation ever undertaken by NATO. NATO is an alliance, a defense alliance that was created to defend Western Europe against the Soviet threat, which doesn't exist anymore. And since that time, NATO has been desperate to find raison d'etre for its continued existence. They had former Yugoslavia. They're still in Bosnia. There's still a NATO contingent in Bosnia. Actually, it's an EU contingent. Beg your pardon. But they're still in Kosovo. But beyond that, they're looking for a reason to exist. And so, because there weren't enough American troops to send to Afghanistan because they were all in Iraq. The Bush administration decided, well, let's plug that hole by persuading our NATO allies to send their troops to Afghanistan. And a failure in Afghanistan would essentially render NATO as nothing more than a paper tiger, an alliance on paper. From a military point of view, since the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore, that might not have enormous consequences, but politically, NATO is the underpinning of the transatlantic relationship. And even now, there's a, there are enormous tensions within NATO over Afghanistan because the, the public opinion in, Af in Europe has even turned even more against continued involvement in Afghanistan than it has here. The Dutch government fell last week over, in a dispute over renewing, keeping Dutch troops, they have 2,000 troops in Afghanistan, in the heart of, of uh, southern Afghanistan, in Urozgan province. Let's see. Yeah. 
The Dutch have got this province here. It's a Taliban stronghold. Um, popular opinion has turned against the war to the extent that the members of the former, uh, the, co- the part of the uh, Dutch coalition said, we've got to get out. Uh, 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 the Dutch prime minister said, under pressure from the Obama administration, said, no, let's renew the troops. They couldn't agree, and the Dutch, the Dutch government fell last week. So there's enormous tensions already within NATO over continued involvement in Afghanistan. And I'm not sure that given the fact that there's really, there would be no other military mission left, that a failure in Afghanistan, that, that NATO could survive a failure in Afghanistan. And that in turn would have an enormously negative impact on transatlantic relations. And with that, I'm going to leave it there. I'm sure that you've got, I hope you've got a lot of questions. Uh, And I hope it didn't get so complicated that I I lost you. Yeah. Yes. 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 India, Iran is one of the big donors. My question is about in the past in the past ten days, uh, six Afghan Taliban have been arrested mm-hmm. in Pakistan, mm-hmm. including Mullah Biradar and Abdul Kabir. Yes. Mullah. Yes. Yeah. And also uh, the Haqqani's, one of the Haqqani's son, Muhammad. Muhammad Haqqani. Haqqani was killed. Yes. Under the, that's a drone. Yes. They wanted Siraj. Yes. I. The, to the best of my knowledge, uh, CIA has not been allowed to interrogate Mullah Abdul Ghani Well, the New York Times reports today that maybe they're going to be able to. Yeah. But yes, but you're right. Yeah. So now this inconvenient alliance between the United States, how do you really measure this? That really, the, Because the rumor in Afghanistan is that this Mullah brother and others were arrested because they were the ones that who wanted to reconcile in the Pakistani ISI deliberately. Yeah, I would, and, yes. I mean, that's, that's a conspiracy theory. What is your opinion? I, I subscribe to that theory. Um, let me explain. I don't know if any of you, uh, how many of you are aware, but over the last week or so, for the very first time in nine years of war, the Pakistani security services arrested uh, members of what is known as the Quetta Shura. Now, let me get the other map back. Here's Quetta. Quetta is the capital of Baluchistan province um, in Pakistan. Um, and for the last nine years after fleeing Afghanistan, Mullah Muhammad Omar, who I talked about earlier, and his leadership council, known as the Quetta Shura, have lived undisturbed in Quetta, Pakistan. And that's why it's called the Quetta Shura. But they also have, they have another Shura up here in, in Peshawar. And so the Americans have been pressuring the Pakistanis for years to do something about this because these guys were running the insurgency that's killing American troops in southern Afghanistan from Pakistani soil in Quetta. And only now have the Pakistanis arrested these guys. And so the question is, why? Why now? When this arrest took place of this man by the name of Mullah Baradar, who is the number two leader, he's effectively the military commander of the, of the Taliban, there was portrayed as the Pakistanis finally sort of turning the page, 
and deciding that they were now going to cooperate with the United States in ending the Taliban insurgency in Afghanistan. I don't subscribe to that, and neither do the people in Af- a lot of most people in Afghanistan. States don't do anything except out of self-interest. So you don't suddenly arrest these guys because you want to help the Americans. No. What I believe is, got to go back, let's start with the president's speech in December. What did the president say? He said, he's putting 30,000 more troops in, and he's going to start withdrawing them in July 2011. Well, that part is what they heard all over this region. Because when they heard that we're going to start pulling troops out, they said, the Americans are leaving. And so that started, already started this jockeying for influence and position in a post-American Afghanistan. The man who was arrested, Mullah Baradar, was engaged in secret talks with not just the Kabul government, but with the Saudis and perhaps even the United States. He is broke. He broke publicly, not publicly, but he broke with um, uh, Al Qaeda. He was critical of Al Qaeda, um, and the Pakistani. ISI, the intelligence service, and I suspect even Mullah Omar himself, went pretty nuts because they don't want these guys, anyone, to be freelancing peace agreements that they don't have control over that doesn't leave them, the Pakistanis, with primacy in terms of outside influence in a post-America Afghanistan. So they arrested him. I firmly believe that. They want to be able to control the terms of that agreement. They don't want to be left out of the agreement because the Pakistanis are absolutely determined that they will be the primary outside influence in Afghanistan after the Americans leave. Pakistan has legitimate interests in Afghanistan. They have to share they share the border. They have tribes that span the border. They have enormous, Pakistan has enormous trade interests in Central Asia, and all of the roads that go to Central Asia go through Afghanistan. Pakistan has legitimate security interests in Afghanistan, but it has used those interests and exploited those interests to the point where if you want to blame one outside power for the last 30 years of, of, of trauma in Afghanistan, it's Pakistan. Because for Pakistan, we've got to go back now to this, to look at Pakistan. It's a very narrow country, geographically. It's 170 million people. And their big neighbor, the superpower of, the, of South Asia, India, is of more than a billion. They've got the world's fourth largest military. And they, the Pakistani military, look at the potential for a war with India, and they say, we're narrow, we're thin, we need a strategic rear where we can put logistics, we can have troops, we can have a place to, to, to refit. Uh, they call it strategic depth. And for them, that's Afghanistan. So there's a number of reasons why the Pakistanis want to ensure that when the United States leaves, the people in Kabul 
are going to be pro-Pakistan. On the other hand, as I said earlier, now the Karzai government is much, much closer to India. So everything that's going on right now has to do with the Indo-Pakistani rivalry. And again, I keep reminding people, nuclear weapons. I, I hope that answered your question. Yeah, back there. Um, you say that NATO can't really survive a failure in Afghanistan. Does that then put kind of like a time limit? Like what if it takes 20 years to win in Afghanistan? Does that mean that kind of that's now put like a time limit on a failure that way? It's a, it's a very good question, which brings me to this point. And I'm not sure that anything we could, we, there's anything we can do in Afghanistan except act as a dam largely, to prevent, to ensure that the, the disastrous scenarios that I painted in my talk don't happen, because we squandered eight years. I got to Kabul in 2001, five days after the Taliban left. And as opposed to Iraq, and as opposed to Baghdad, they really were dancing in the streets and throwing flowers and sweets at Americans back then in Kabul, because they were tired of the Taliban rule. It was incredibly repressive. Afghans loved music. Afghan culture, just it, it, all of South Asia. I mean, the most, the most popular music, I think, you guys correct me if I'm wrong, in South Asia today comes from here, Mumbai. The, 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 the Hindi cinema music, the movie music, they love it. Well, they couldn't play that in Afghanistan during the Taliban reign. Suddenly, they could play it. Suddenly, they didn't have to grow beards. They could shave their beards off. And we, the United States, were the first foreign power in Afghan history to be welcomed in Afghanistan. And instead of using that to build Afghanistan into what I would have called um, the, the centerpiece of American policy in American relations with the Muslim world. Here was an opportunity to show the Muslim world that we aren't at war with Islam, that we're not in a crusade against Islam, that we want to coexist with Islam. Instead, what the United States did was bring back the very warlords whose deprivations and repression and abuses led to the creation of the Taliban in the first place in 1992, the formation of the Taliban in 1992. And we used them as our proxies so that we could devote the bulk of our military power and resources and money to invading another Muslim country. And for that is one of the two, what I call the two strategic errors that we made in Afghanistan. And we did nothing about it until maybe last year, when finally they, it, it, it dawned on people, finally it prevailed on the administration that the scenarios that I'm talking about are what we really have to worry about. We didn't have to worry about Saddam Hussein. I mean, he was not a threat. But what we've unleashed in Afghanistan, that is the real threat. The second strategic mistake that we made 
the United States, was known as the Indo-U.S. Nuclear Agreement. This is an agreement that the United States struck with India that allows international companies to sell nuclear, civilian nuclear technology to the Indians. It's a huge market, and that's what drove this agreement. As part of the agreement, it puts 14, I think it's 14, Indian nuclear facilities under international safeguards, IEA, International Atomic Energy Agency safeguards. But it leaves eight of their facilities outside of international inspection, and those facilities are free to continue producing plutonium for Indian nuclear weapons. Well, the Pakistanis saw this and they said, wait a minute, what are you doing? You're supposed to be our ally, and here you are, allowing the Indi giving the Indians the opportunity to continue producing nuclear fuel for their weapons. Those negotiations started in 2004 and were underway in 2005. Well, when did we see the resurgence of the Taliban begin? 2004, 2005. I don't think that that just happened by itself. That action by the Bush administration persuaded the Pakistanis that we didn't have shared strategic goals when it came to Afghanistan. That we were, in fact, going to do to them what we've done before, which is help them for a while and then turn our backs and walk away. That's the trend line in American relations with Pakistan. And so, um, as I said, it's very complicated. Pakistanis are looking at this. They want to be able to control post-America Afghanistan. They don't want it to be in the, the Indian uh, sphere of influence because then they say, we've been surrounded by India. And then, of course, you have Iran. Iran is not a friendly state with Pakistan. One is predominantly Sunni Muslim. The other is Shiite Muslim. They don't get along. Um, and so that's Pakistan's strategic goal right now. And that's why they arrested Baradar. That's why I don't know if there's anything we can do, no matter how much time we have. Um, I just don't know. I think we've squandered too much time. Yeah, right here. Um, thank you. Um, I believe it was you talked about uh, Muhammad Omar, who was um, anointed at the um, at Pashtun, mosque in Kandahar. At the mosque in Kandahar, yes. Um, do you think he has enough charisma to kind of rally a lot of the jihadists together, like you say, to take over Afghanistan? And if so, could he possibly go for Islamabad next? I, I you know, here's what I think. I, I, I think there's a potential that having attained this aura of having participated in the defeat of the communists and then defeating the Jews and the Crusaders, that he becomes hailed throughout the Islamic world as the new Mahdi, as the deliverer of the Muslim Ummah, the Muslim community. And I think he will be the hero. I mean, I think his reputation will surpass that. I mean, Osama bin Laden does not have a good reputation in the Islamic world. I mean, he's really, he's not. He doesn't have a following. But if Omar was to be able to be able to claim, was to be able to claim to have defeated the Americans, the world's most powerful military, that potential is possible, yes. Now, he claims to be a nationalist. He has put out statements over the internet that he has no uh, a goal except the liberation of Afghanistan from foreign occupation. He doesn't covet any, any other 
territory, but there are people who are associated with him who do. The Haqqanis, as I talked about, uh, among uh, are, are one, and then there are various other sects, uh, various other factions within the Taliban. And I, I don't know. I think the danger is that he could. You know, I don't see a man who's being hailed like that as, you know, retiring into going into quiet retirement in Kandahar. Is it possible that he may try to start an international organization like Al Qaeda? No, no, I don't think he will. I think what he'll do is provide sanctuary. And, and even if Al-Qaeda, and to, it may not be to Al-Qaeda, it may be to a groups like Lashkar-e-Taiba, it may be to groups coming out of Uzbekistan and Tajikistan. But I have a hard time discounting the idea that these groups, all of these kinds of groups, would not find welcome or at least sanctuary in a Taliban-run Afghanistan, if there isn't even Afghanistan to run. I take you back to the civil war scenario I talked to you about. The ethnic divide in Afghanistan roughly goes across the center of the country. You have the Pashtun area here, roughly going like this, here. Then you have uh, the areas of the Uzbeks and the Tajiks. And also you have in the center of Afghanistan, the areas that dominated by the Hazaras, the Shiites. And if there's a civil war, there's no guarantee that that country is even going to stay together anymore. It could just rupture at the seams. He is a Pashtun. Oh, very much. He's a. There are two main Pashtun tribes. There are two Pashtun tribes, the Durrani's and the Khilzai's. And it's hard to sort of characterize each, but you could characterize the Khilzai's as being more sort of from the countryside and the poorer. And the Durrani's are uh, the uh, the tribe uh, of the king. Uh, it's uh, Hamid Karzai. They are the traditional rulers of Afghanistan. Uh, tra- uh, Hamid Karzai is a, is a, is a Durrani Pashtun. And what, what is, uh, he's a Khilzai. He's a he's very much he's an un, he was uneducated village preacher uh, who became a religious student. But he's but you know his the aura that he commands is quite. To the extent that even Osama bin Laden and um, his his deputy Zawari have sworn bayat or oath of allegiance to Mullah Omar. Back there. Um, hi, the uh, State Department and I believe the Department of Defense um, are planning to. Uh, put out lots and lots of money to send police trainers over to Afghanistan. I'd like to hear uh, your point of view on the investment in this training. Do you think it will be a part of success? Or if, I'd just like to hear your opinion on that. We have been trying to build an Afghan police force for ever since we got in there. there's a number of, and, and you have to have a functioning police force because really an insurgency is really, the idea is to reestablish government authority in, at the local level and provide, and, and the one thing, the most important thing a government provides to its citizens is security. And so on the local level, right, the police are what, are the, the, the number one instrument of security. The problem is this, two couple problems. The first is, 
that Afghanistan has never had a national police force. We're trying to create one. Afghanistan was run by a king, right? Who acted largely as, until 78, 77, overthrown in 7, sorry, 72, 72, 73. Who really operated largely as an ATM machine, right? Money would go down to the governors, the governors would then send it to the, the districts, and the districts would distribute it. And there was the source of political patronage. But he wasn't a powerful man. He didn't excite, there was no powerful central government in Afghanistan. There was no powerful central police force. And of course, we went in there and we imposed, as the United States, our template on what we think Afghanistan should look like. And that template calls for a strong central government and a national police force. We're imposing this on a country that's never had them. The police in Afghanistan are the most hated government institution in the country. Why? Because they're corrupt. They are as corrupt as anybody in Afghanistan. Because they're not well paid. Because they're illiterate. They don't, they, most of them can't read or write. Um, because that's the way it's been. You shake down people on the corner. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a facet of daily life in Afghanistan. It's interesting. There was a study done. I'm trying to remember who did it. Oh, the United Nations um, um, uh, Office of Drug Control and Crime, based in Vienna, did a, did a survey. Late last year, they published it, I think, which determined that paying bribes is a daily facet, is a facet of daily Afghan life. You live in Afghanistan, at some point during the week, you're probably going to end up paying a bribe to a police officer. They abuse their positions. Um, they're involved in the narcotics trade. I mean, they are hated. And one of the problems, and I've been embedded with American forces, when we've gone into, you go into the bazaar, which is sort of the center of life in each district in Afghanistan. Um, and we're loaded, our soldiers are loaded for bear, and I understand why. They're, you know, in what they, the military calls full battle rattle. You know, they've got the, they've got the, the, the ballistic glasses on and the helmets, and they've got these gigantic armored vehicles with the guys in the machine gun turrets, and they've got their fingers on their triggers, and, they, and they're looking at the guys in the bazaar, and they're saying, hi, we're here to help your police. Well, that doesn't get your points in and I'll, I'll get one, one more thing. There's a major offensive going on right now in southern Afghanistan. It's a place called Marja. I don't know if any of you read about it. And we're going to militarily, it's a no contest. We're going to win it. The real battle will come, the real test will come, is when we deploy what General McChrystal calls the government in a box, he calls it, which is actually when we bring, and we're starting to do this, local administrators to reestablish government authority in Marja. But we're also bringing police. And if they revert to the normal conduct of most Afghan police, we're going to lose in the end. Because we're going to leave. The police are going to abuse the citizenry. And the Taliban will come back, welcomed by the citizenry. So is it a good thing that we're training the police? Probably. Yes, absolutely. Are they trainable? Can we create a responsible police force in Afghanistan? We've been trying for seven years now, and we're still trying. So I don't know. I'd like to. Yeah. Well, it's it's a 
It's an intricate part of what's called COIN, counterinsurgency strategy. You've got to have a police department. Because really, that's the American exit strategy. Our exit strategy is create conditions in Afghanistan to the point where the Taliban are reduced to a, a problem that can be dealt with by the police and the intelligence service. And we can leave. I don't know if it's possible. I mean, the police are so corrupt. And, and even all the way up through the ranks, all the way to the top, the very top, where President Karzai refuses to replace blatantly corrupt commanders because they're part of his political patronage network. Yeah. Did you have a question? Yeah. Yeah, we were actually... We were just having these discussions earlier in our, uh, our military science classes. Um, a lot of this sort of thing's coming up here. General McChrystal has very specific, you know, instructions that he's given the military on how he wants them to... The tactical directive you're talking about. Yeah. Yes. And, um, you know, he's putting limitations on the kind of weapons that we can use, and he wants people to interact um, more professionally and more personally with them so that we can quit driving the wedge between the military and the civilians. Is that effective, or do you think um, so? it's too little too late? I keep going back to the time factor. We're in a race, yeah, and I don't know that we can win it. Abs I mean, it's, you absolutely have to do this. Um, and let me, I experienced firsthand um, this tactical directive that the gentleman is referring to is a directive that General McChrystal issued last summer, which basically said, restricted the ability of U.S. forces, NATO forces, to, to use air power and heavy artillery. And there was a reason for that. And the reason is because we're killing so many civilians every time we use air power and artillery and best recruited, one of the best recruiting tools for the Taliban. So we're talking about Pashtun society. Pashtun society operates according to a centuries-old tribal law. It's a fusion between tribal law and, and, and Sharia, uh, Islamic law, called Pashtun Wali. And Revengeance, revenge, is a very important pillar. It's seven pillars of Pashtunwali. It's one of the main pillars of Pashtunwali. You kill a civilian, his cousins and his brothers or whatever, or her cousins or brothers or father are going to join the, the Taliban. And that's what was happening. That's why we were, the Taliban was able to extend the, in, in only three years, basically from 05 to 07, went from virtually, you know, uh, no territory at all in Afghanistan to 30, having a presence in 32 out of 34 provinces, I think is what the latest Pentagon figure is, something like that. And one of the major reasons is because we were killing civilians. And on the other hand, you find yourselves, American troops find themselves in positions where they are under fire. I was in this ambush that I was uh, caught in in September, there were women and children in the village that we were trying to get to, uh, we were going to, who were replenishing the ammunition of the guys who were attacking us. They were, they were uh, giving them, you know, they were running weapons back and forth to these guys. What do you do when you have troops who are killed? But there are, there are, there's, there's an allowance. There's that that tactical directive gives the commander the low the. the, the the, the tactical commander, the ability to help his guys if they get into into trouble. Um, so there's a bit of a mis, mis, 
I think, a bit of a misapprehension about what it actually says. But I actually, I understand why General McChrystal did what he did. Because killing civilians, both in Afghanistan and Pakistan, is what is real, was just killing us, politically. Yeah, right here. Um, you said a lot about um, the whole central part, the central part of this problem, a lot of the problems uh, in Afghanistan is Pakistan feeling threatened by India and still wanting to control the region. Could you explain a little bit more clearly why Pakistan feels threatened from India? I mean, obviously I don't know that much about the region, but India doesn't really strike me as a country that's going to use nuclear weapons to take over Pakistan. You know, to, so why does Pakistan feel so threatened? Good question. The Pakistani military gets 70% of the Pakistan's federal budget. And they use that money to buy American F-16s and tanks and uh, uh, missiles from North Korea and from China. And they need to be able to justify that. So you need an enemy. And what better, there's only one choice when it comes to who your enemy is going to be. It's going to be, oh, it's going to be India. That's why. That's a good question. Because as I keep telling, I, I've heard from Pakistani generals that the United States is part of an international conspiracy with Afghanistan and Britain and India and Israel and whoever else you want to throw in there to surround and destabilize Pakistan. But my response to that is, now let me get this right. India, which wants to be a, a player on the world economic stage, is a player on the world economic stage. That's what they want to do. That's where the Indians want to go. They want to break up Pakistan so they create a failed state on their western border that, has, that is not only replete with conventional weapons, but then will creates an opportunity for Islamic extremist groups to get their hands on nuclear weapons so that at which, whose main target, next target will be India? It doesn't make sense. I mean, it doesn't make sense. So the reason why they continue to, there's, there's another reason, but let me finish this one. They continue to paint India as the threat is because they need to justify their budget. 70%. Look, Pakistan has the world's largest man-made irrigation system. It's a it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, an agricultural country. They lose 70% of their water from this system because it's not being repaired. There are 11 to 12 hour blackouts of electricity in their, uh, in, 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 in many of their major cities that force industry to go offline. They can't produce textiles in Lahore and Punjab because they don't have the electricity. They can't pump gasoline because there's no electricity. They have food shortages. Their hospitals, I would never want to be caught in a bomb explosion in Pakistan because then I'd have to go to a Pakistani hospital. Pakistani doctors are great, but you don't want to go to a hospital because the money that could be used to fix all of that goes to the military. If there wasn't, if, if, if they couldn't justify their budget 
all Pakistan, I don't think, would be in the straits it is in today. And and one of the one of the great changes that have been made in American policy over in the last year is that the Obama administration recognizes that all of our aid to Pakistan until this year was mainly going to the military for our own reasons. We've never had the United States has rarely never really had a Pakistan policy. There's always a an alternative uh, reason for why we have a relationship with Pakistan. Why we back during the Cold War it was because we wanted to contain the Soviet Union, and then when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, it was because we wanted to defeat the Soviets in Afghanistan. And and we've never had a policy which says, now wait a minute, how do we help Pakistan itself fix Pakistan? Well, we're now starting to give 1.5 billion dollars a year to Pakistan that's only going to civilian purposes. But I don't know that we have the time anymore to get it right. So that's one reason. The other reason, of course, is Kashmir. Um, and we start getting very complicated. But, but Kashmir is a raison d'etre for Pakistan. is the, the only Muslim-majority state in India. Pakistan was formed as the homeland of the subcontinent's Muslims. And yet there's this state in northern India that is supposed to be part of Pakistan but isn't. The military wants its weapons for that, too. Yeah. Uh, when I was in Iraq, I saw the immediate effects of the uh, Sunni awakening and, and the hiring of the sons of Iraq and, and what that did for, for increasing the security situation and, and stabilizing the area that I was operating in. So can you talk to the efficacy of, of maybe not necessarily that type of economic development, if you will, but the economic development that we need to accomplish in Afghanistan? Can that legitimize... Uh, the government and cannot give the police force a country that they will believe in enough to, to not be as corrupt as they are. I don't know if there's anything we can do about repairing the way Af- Afghan- Afghans regard their government. Not after what happened last summer, but just the blatant rigging, the massive election, plural rigging that took place on behalf of President Karzai. I mean, most Afghans didn't even care that he stayed in office because they expected him to stay in office. They expected to happen what was going to happen. So I don't know that any amount of money we can put in there can change attitudes about President Karzai. That's why right now the emphasis is on the local level. The emphasis is on trying to get legitimate administrators in on the local level. Um, uh, but Iraq is not Afghanistan, or Afghanistan is not Iraq. Let's not forget they're two completely different countries. Iraq was the most affluent country in the Arab world. They have real roads in Iraq. I mean, I've spent time in Iraq. You could drive everywhere in Iraq. You can't do that in Afghanistan. That's why they had to spend $5 billion making a whole new kind of uh, MRAP. These are these mine-resistant vehicles for Afghanistan because you can't use the ones that we were using in Iraq and Afghanistan because there's no roads to drive on. Instead, we drive on their, their dirt roads uh, into the middle of a bazaar. I've been on... This happened to me last year. In these gigantic towering MRAPs, I forget what they, they weigh, and, you know, 20 tons, I think, is the bigger ones. And you churn up the, in the wintertime, you churn up the roads so that you get divots in the roads up to your knees and you hold up traffic for three or four hours and there's a guy in one of the cars who's got to get to the hospital because he's been mauled by a dog, but he can't because the Americans have got the road blocked and they've churned it up with their, M, with their MRAPs. I mean, that's, that's on a micro, micro 
example of, of the problems that we've, we, we, we were just not attuned to in Afghanistan. Um, and it's, and I'm, I don't mean to paint America, us as villains. We're trying to do the right thing. We're, you know, we've went in, as opposed to the Soviets. I went there when the Soviets were there. Soviets would go in and just decimate villages. We go in there and try and, and, and we go in there for the right reasons, but we've lost, it's, it's now become this battle of perceptions in Afghanistan. The world's biggest military goes in, and it's still there eight years later, can't defeat the ragtag force of insurgents wearing floppy plastic sandals and carrying Kalashnikovs, right? And we're there with our high technology. And we haven't been able to catch Osama bin Laden. And so you go, and this, I've done this, I've gone to the, the beginning, even four years ago this started, you go to the, the campus of Kabul University, which is educating the, the, the elite of Afghanistan. These are, you know, this is the educated elite of Afghanistan. These are the guys who you hope are going to be the next generation of moderate, is moderate Muslim leaders of Afghanistan. And they start saying, you guys invented Osama bin Laden. What are you talking about? You guys invented him because it gives you justification to keep your troops occupying our country as part of your war against Islam. And I'm hearing this from the educated elite of Afghanistan. And so, can we do the same thing there that we did it in, with the Sunni awakening? I'm not sure we can. The other reason, Sunnis in, Af in Iraq are a minority, right? They're a minority, and we were there to help them protect themselves against the majority, the Shiites. In Afghanistan, the Pashtuns are a plurality. They're not a majority. They're about 46, 48% of the people. They're the strongest. They don't need the kind of help from us that we gave the Sunni awakening. Um, so I don't know if it can work, only because of all of these factors that are against us now. Eight years, they regard us as occupiers, not as people who've come there as we did in the beginning, to liberate them from this oppressive uh, Islamic militia movement, the Taliban. Yeah, right here. Uh, I just want to say that Pakistan has been one of the closest allies of the United States for more than eight, nine years. Uh, uh, actually, I was reading the news yesterday. Since 2003, we have lost three, uh, 30,000 civilians mm -hmm. in that area. Uh, Pakistani army had attacked its own area in Waziristan and Farah uh, upon U.S. orders. And uh, I think Pakistan is a country who has captured more than any other country, the Al-Qaeda and Taliban operators. Yes. But why still there is a huge mistrust that exists and why again and again Pakistan has been told to do more? Uh, how how you think it can be you know, taken away? Yeah. And me being a Pakistani, I think like there is a lot that Pakistani army is doing, mm -hmm. but still there's a huge mistrust that exists. So what do you think? How it can be taken away? Well, we've played our part in creating, helping to create that mistrust. As I said, there's been a trend to American policy in this part of the world, going back to the Cold War, to the founding of Pakistan, um, where the United States' policy towards Pakistan was one of part of containment of the Soviet Union. Again, during the Mujahideen period, during the Soviet occupation, it was to defeat the Soviets in Afghanistan. Um, so, and then we've turned around and walked away. So we've helped create that mistrust. And there are other reasons. But the Pakistani policy is one of 
It's, a, it's, it's kind of like, it's, it's double-edged. On the one hand, the Pakistani military, its created group for 60 years has relied on what, the milita- what our military called asymmetric warfare to fight its larger neighbor, India. And that asymmetric warfare has involved creating, training, arming, and dispatching across the border guerrilla groups, military proxies. They did the same with the Taliban in 1992, beginning in 1992 in Afghanistan. The problem is, in doing that, they also created an internal problem for themselves. These Islamic groups got out of control. Um, So what they've tried to do is manage this problem. The Afghan Taliban have been allowed to, 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 to exist unhindered here, based in Quetta, based in the tribal area, because they're not involved in the insurgency in Afghan, in, inside Pakistan. The Pakistanis' army are only interested in going after people who are creating problems inside Pakistan. There's a couple of guys up in Northwest Frontier Province up here, I mean, in the, in the federally administered tribal area, um, who are, are part of the Pakistani Taliban, the TTP, the Tereki Taliban Pakistan. It's the Taliban movement of Pakistan. Um, but they're not getting attacked by the Pakistani military because they are sending their fighters across the border to attack the Americans in Afghanistan. It's this dual policy that the Pakistanis think that they can pursue where you manage the good Taliban because you want to exert your influence in Afghanistan, but you go after the bad Taliban. Um, And this is going to get them in trouble. This has gotten them in trouble um, uh, because in the end, the, both these good and bad Taliban are actually working together on both sides of the border because it's a Pashtun-based insurgency on both sides. So they've created, you know, the, the Pakistanis are inheriting this whirlwind that they themselves created because of this policy of using military proxies as instruments of their foreign policy. There's a way of exerting influence in neighboring countries that you can, you can use through the political process that you don't need to do through, arm, through sponsoring armed insurrections. And once the Pakistanis learn that, I think you're going to see some progress being made in Afghanistan, perhaps. But that's, I hope that answered your question. Yeah. So basically, like, uh, I understand what happened to America in 9-11 and all that. And probably, like, the Taliban is in Afghanistan and major areas in Pakistan, whatever it is. But um, I don't understand how, like, I understand you guys are there in Afghanistan to dominate and to destabilize basically the Taliban. But what I see happening right now, being a Pakistani, uh, I see that Pakistan's even being destabilized because of that, even as Afghanistan. Uh, But, uh, like, why is the U.S. government taking part, like the U.S. Army taking part in the Afghani government. Like, I understand that they're there to actually destabilize the Taliban's, the militants, basically. But why are they trying to take over Afghanistan? Or are they trying to take over only the Taliban's? Who are the people who are actually... The U.S. military? Right. Because they're they're going after the government. They're trying to uh, make reforms in the government of Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. So basically, like, being a Pakistani, I... 
it's not giving us a big sign because it makes us feel as if someone's trying to take over Afghanistan uh-huh. and trying to take over Pakistan just because Pakistan has the nuclear powers. I, 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 in my opinion, I think if Pakistan didn't have the nuclear powers, I guess Pakistan wouldn't have been on the maps right now, basically that. There's, um, this, the, yeah. there's, there's this idea in Pakistan that the reason that we are in Afghanistan and that we're uh, in cahoots with India and Israel and what have you is that, that we could destabilize Pakistan and go in and steal their nuclear weapons, right? And I can assure you that I'm pretty sure that's not the case, unless in some secret office somewhere in the Pentagon or in Washington or in the White House, that really, you know, that's the plan. We don't want to be in Afghanistan. It's, we don't. We've got enough problems here in our country. This place is cost, going to cost us an extra $30 billion a year when we send those new troops in. We don't want to, We don't have that money we don't have. We don't want to be there. We were attacked from Afghanistan and we legitimately intervened there. But then... We went and invaded Iraq, and we got tied down in Afghanistan. We brought back the warlords who created, whose abuses created the Taliban in the first place. And we turned our backs as we concentrated on Iraq. That's why we're still there, because we frittered away. We, 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 we frittered away all of that opportunity, and now we're stuck. So, no, we don't want to be there. No, we don't want your nuclear weapons. We prefer that you didn't have them. You know, we prefer that, you know, I prefer that nobody had them. But I assure you, we're not there to occupy Afghanistan, and we certainly don't want to occupy Pakistan, and we certainly don't want to destabilize Pakistan, because can you imagine what will happen if Pakistan breaks apart? It's got 80, at least 80 to 100 nuclear weapons. It fragments into its ethnic components, and then each of these ethnic components is run by warlords who get their... I mean, this is going to be the next place they go for. India doesn't want that on its western border, and we don't want that. So I can assure you that, please, don't listen to that anymore. I'm just telling you, like, what people basically think back No, I, I know that, and, and in, pa- in part it's because your security service has your journalists on the payroll, and they put those stories out, particularly on the Urdu cable channels and in the Urdu language newspapers, and it's not true. And it's a way, look, you had the most successful, Pakistan had the most successful election in its history in February of 2008. I was there. And I've covered many Pakistani elections. This was a genuine election where there was very little abuse. There were very, you know, on, on the scale of things, this was a really successful election. And the military lost. And when the civilians took over for the first time in, since 98, since the coup in 98, um, the military was, who was the most despised institution in, in Pakistan? Musharraf and the military. So they need to refocus people's anger somewhere else. And they do it through your media by making us the villains. The campaign in the Pakistani media against the United States has been so intense that they have put the pictures, video, of American USAID, the aid guys who are trying to build schools and roads and what have you, they've put them on Afghan Pakistani television and said they're CIA agents or they work for Blackwater. They put pictures of their houses on television, their addresses. I mean, this is 
a threat to their security. This is how intense that campaign got. And it's because they want to take the focus off the military and put it on somewhere else. Let's go to the back there. What, in Pakistan? Yeah. No, there are some incredibly good Pakistani journalists. I mean, some, some of the best journalists I know. Uh, Ahmad Rashid, uh, who wrote the book The Taliban. Um, uh, 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 Najam Sethi, who was the publisher of uh, a, a, a newspaper called The Friday Times, who was arrested and put under house arrest for months by, uh, by uh, the military dictatorship. I mean, there's some terrific Pakistani journalists, but... And it's not just go for Pakistan. This goes for all of this area. There are many journalists on the payroll who say what they're told to say. So is there kind of like a fear thing, like a fear thing going on? Ap- like their, their salary will be taken away and they won't have their job. Yeah, that, but also they get money. They get a stipend. They get payments. They're, they get plots for houses or they, you know. Yeah, right here. You mentioned at some points that um, Chechen and other Islamic forces from different conflicts around the world have been involved. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the history of that, please? You know, when did they first start sure. getting involved, um, or have they always been there? Sure. Um, there was there's a group uh, 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 from Uzbekistan uh, called the IMU, the Islamic Movement of Uzbekistan. Uh, it was headed by a former Soviet special forces officer. Najam Ghani, I believe his name was, uh, who associated his group uh, with Al-Qaeda. Uh, they actually had a base outside of Kabul when Al-Qaeda essentially ran Afghanistan. I mean, Al-Qaeda was basically running Afghanistan. It's where Mullah Omar was getting his money from. You see the house that Osama bin Laden built for Mullah Omar outside of Kandahar. Um, the IMU was based in Kabul, outside of Kabul. You also have uh, um, another uh, um, Islamic separatist, uh, Islamic extremist group from Central Asia, the Islamic Union Movement, I think it's called. Um, but they were also part of Al Qaeda. Uh, they were Al Qaeda foot soldiers um, in Afghanistan. And when we went in, we actually killed the head of the IMU. We bombed his headquarters, um, and they all. These, the Chechens and the Uzbeks and there were a lot of che- you know there were a lot of Al Qaeda people who were back going back and forth between Afghanistan, the Gulf, uh, and Chechnya. There were a lot of Chechen fighters. A lot of these guys actually actually met uh, in Bosnia during the war in Bosnia. Uh, and so they were all they all flocked to Afghanistan when the Taliban came to power. And again, this is what India doesn't want to happen. This is what Russia doesn't want to happen. Uh, which is why Russia, by the way, secretly backed the Northern Alliance as well. Um, they don't want that to happen. So they all ended up here. And when we intervened, they all fled across the border into the Federally Administered Tribal Agency of Pakistan with Al-Qaeda. They married locally. They took local wives. They've, they've sort of inserted themselves into the local uh, population. And, and they are now, they can't go back home. So they are now fighting in Afghanistan alongside uh, the Taliban. That's that's a very quick summary of, of how they got involved there. Yeah. No, because I don't think there is one. 
I mean, uh, if anything, they 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 may have been doing some training of Pakistan of the Frontier Corps. I mean, they're on the roads. Their cars are not registered. The ammunition they're carrying is illegal. It's in the news they, every they, day. They provide security for American diplomats. But believe me, they 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 are not part of some plan to steal Pakistan's nuclear weapons. Right. And there I aren't mean, many of them there at all. Actually, they're all over the news if you go check on CNN yeah, but, and BBC. But that's what I'm trying there, to tell right? you. that Don't believe what you're reading in your newspapers or, or you're seeing on CNN your television. CNN and BBC is not our... Uh, it's not a Pakistani channel. You know that. There, there are, there is some, and they're not, they're not called Blackwater anymore. They're called Z. And there's some of, there's a few of them. They're not called Blackwater anymore. They don't even haven't used that name in a couple of years since they killed a bunch of people in in Iraq. They're right. Not, so you're saying they're not in Pakistan anymore. I'm saying there may be some who are doing diplomatic security right. for the American embassy. So what I mean, I'm telling still, you is they're not illegal, floating all over the northwest front. I mean, that's Iraq. true. I, that's true. But having illegal cars, right, not resisted guard, illegal weapons, I get, I think that's again the sovereignty they, they of the country. They don't put. Right? American diplomatic plates on their cars for very good reasons. I mean, I know that, but still, I mean, just going around the roads. And if, if they, they get arrested, there, right? If they're there, yeah. they are there with the full knowledge of the Pakistani government on Pakistani, on visas. And if they're carrying weapons, believe me, the story that you're referring to yeah. was there was a raid on a Pakistani security company, which was found to have illegal weapons uh, in Islamabad. No, no, this was in Lahore. In Lahore. Yeah. Oh, this was the checkpoint that they stopped the car. Exactly. Three right. cars, black right. line cruisers. Well, they're not cruising around with... But they haven't been prosecuted, have they? No, because right. they exactly. were caught. They were held for two hours. Another car from uh, the U.S. Because embassy came and they took them the away. Because it didn't have American ID on it. Because right. you don't drive around Pakistan in cars with American ID on yeah, it. That's anymore. true. That's true. Yeah. Right? So stop and, and think again. Even if there's scads of black water in, in Pakistan. Again, I go back to my contention that the last thing the United States and India and Afghanistan and anybody wants is to destabilize and, 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 and deconstruct Pakistan and create this failed state awash in conventional weapons and nuclear weapons that Islamic extremist groups could get their hands on. Right, so you must basically keep going saying... back to that. Right, I got it. So you're basically saying that they are in Pakistan because Pakistan's own security? Absolutely. Pakistan gives them the visas to get into Pakistan. There's a reason why they're there. They've been doing some training of the Frontier Corps. The Frontier Corps are the tribal militia that operates up here, that, that is recruited from the tribes here in the Northwest, in, uh, in the federally administered tribal agency. And they're being trained in counterinsurgency uh, and, and equipped by the United States for counterinsurgency operations. But believe me, there aren't thousands of Blackwater people, because they're not even called Blackwater anymore, running around Pakistan trying to destabilize the country. Right. I got it. Thanks. I think we have to uh, call it quits here. And, uh, Mr. Landy may be here for a few minutes, but he has a plane in less than a few hours, and we have to get into the airport to catch that plane. So I'd like to uh, ask you all to join me in thanking him very much for a very stimulating <laughs>